Welcome, story lovers. This is Laurel McCarg, and you're listening to and watching, if you're on this YouTube video, Alligator Preserves. I have a very special guest with me today. I always have special guests, but Jerry's extra special. I'm going to introduce you to author, columnist, radio show host, and denizen of Mother Earth, Jerry Fabianic. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Jerry, welcome to Alligator Preserves. Oh, thanks, Laurel. I'm just thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here this day after Thanksgiving. We're recording this the day after Thanksgiving. So tell me, what was your meal yesterday? Oh, we did something a little bit unusual. Um, I ended up making barbecue barbecue sandwiches and with sweet potatoes and uh, whatnot. And uh, I'm not a big turkey fan. I like it, but, you know, it's kind of grown out of that. So since I was a boy, when I would you know, crave the drumstick every time. Oh, you're a drumstick guy. I I am a wing girl. And that's pretty much, I'm like, the wings are mine. And this Uh, is something about the wing meat is just extra special. Maybe it's because I've always dreamt that of flying and someday I want to fly, I guess, uh, eating those turkey wings. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, Jerry, you are, you're a self-proclaimed denizen of Mother Earth. Tell me about your relationship with Mother Earth. Oh, wow. You know, out in nature uh, is the one place I feel totally comfortable without any oppression, just free and so connected. I just feel energies there. And uh, whether I'm puttering in my garden or going for a long hike, uh, climbing a 14er, skiing down a slope or going for a run, whatever it is. I just feel one in, with nature there, and I can detach from all the pressures and the ills and the struggles of the world. So you mentioned 14ers, and for those people who might live on the coasts listening to this, tell them what a 14er is. Well, it's a mountain any uh, higher than 14,000, 14,000 feet and higher in altitude. And in Colorado, we officially have 54, and then there's always some give and take because the uh, the geo. Uh, Logical Society says one thing, the Colorado Mountain Club says another, but generally the rule of thumb is there needs to be a half mile distance from point A to point B between two peaks and about a 500 foot drop in elevation between them. So actually there's some sub peaks like Cameron, which is a sub peak, I believe of Lincoln, that is actually higher than some of the other 14ers around, but it's, you know, generally we say 54 and uh, I've done 34 of them. I've Bag 34, as we say. You're a 14-er bagger. That's awesome. Well, you are the author of a book, Sisyphus Wins. Tell me how your beliefs about nature and Mother Earth, how how do they play in with this novel, which is described as a novel about self-acceptance, forgiveness, and triumph? Well, in this, uh, the setting, actually, for the story is on a mountain initially, and it is Mount of the Holy Cross, where it's set. And that's one of the 14ers in Colorado. 
And when I tell the story, Jonathan, who's a protagonist, the story opens up with him going for a long hike on this day, on this one particular day. He's completely exhausted. And uh, his intent is to climb the mountain. Now, this isn't just an ordinary 14er. It's not one with what we call a lot of exposure, but it's long and enduring. And uh, so I start the story off with that. And while he's in the process of making this climb, he has an ordeal and uh, one thing leads to another. And he starts thinking back to a time in his life. And that's where the story starts to unfold. Okay. So this leads me right into my next question. Your main character, Jonathan Slavanko. Mm-hmm. How much of Jonathan is Jerry? Wow. That, uh, that's a great question. I say that the, I call the novel memoir-ish, that it's not a memoir. It's a work of fiction But I draw heavily on prior experiences, and I change names, and I certainly embellish and recreate and so on. But I really try to look at what I authentically went through as a boy, as a young man coming of age, and what it was like. And so I think the best stories are the ones that we can identify with, you know, the more serious ones and then the more humorous ones that... Like I had to, when I was 16 years old, break into my mother's house because she threatened to lock me out if I wasn't in by 11. It was after midnight. So it was like, how do I get in there? And I managed to do it. So that's a fun part of the story, too. <laughs> my mother used to, she'd stay up, you know, I'm, one, I'm the fourth of five girl, girls in my family. And coming home from a date or whatever, if we were parked outside the house for too long, the light switch, the front light switch, she would <laughs> flick it on and off. And yeah, that was our that was our signal yeah. to get your butt in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Next step out, she's coming out and knocking on the uh, car door. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> we, we both have uh, had Catholic mothers, right? Uh, we did, yes, very Catholic. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, we did. Well, we'll get to that. One of the incidents that happens in the book, Jonathan falls on Mount yes. of the Holy Cross. Is this an experience that you actually had? It is. And I draw on it. It was a day I, I climbed Holy Cross and I was really exhausted, but it was just like, I just need to do this. And uh, so I, when you start on Holy Cross, it, you start at the parking lot, you're around 10,000 feet or so. And uh, you start to climb. Uh, it's a steady pace up to what is called Half Moon Pass. And once you get the Half Moon Pass, the drop then is about 900 feet, almost 1,000 feet down into this valley. Mm-hmm. And it's not a cliff in a way, but it's steep, and it's rocky, and there's roots sticking out. And you really have to be careful about your footing. Otherwise, bad things can happen. And it was one of those, and I just got a little sloppy, and I literally caught my toe in a root, and I just started going forward. And I literally just put my arm up like this and braced myself and hit and rolled. And, of course, it completely stunned me. And, um, you know, not being a smart guy, I was hiking. And this day here, I had to hike it alone anyway. But there were other people coming. I knew that. But basically, I was on my own at that point. And so it was like, well, what do you do? Well, the first thing you start to do is, you know, wiggle the fingers and toes. And if they're moving, okay. Um, I didn't hit my head on a rock, although it looked perilously close. Yeah. 
And so I, you know, one thing manipulated, moved around because I was, you know, head down the hill and had my day pack on and got back to my feet and, you know, took a sip out of the water bladder and shook everything around and looked back up the hill and said, well, I can go back. That way is home and safety or I can keep going. And you know the choice I made. Yes, so. you'll have to read, read the book because this, this is memoir-ish but uh, definitely embellished. Uh, speaking of embellishing, so my first novel, Miss, was mm -hmm. loosely based on my first year of teaching seventh grade English. Ah. And, you know, loosely based. My main character, the teacher, the seventh grade teacher, I had to make her young and single and, you know, perky so I could throw in some embellish with some romance or whatever. Friends of mine, friends and family who have read it cannot separate the main character from me when they read it. And so it influences, I think, the way they read it. I'm right. wondering if any of your readers hear your voice in Sisyphus Wins, and I wonder how that affects their reading experience, or have they said anything about how that might affect their experience? Oh, that's a wonderful question. It's a great question. What I've discovered, Laurel, is that there are several different groups that read. The first is the ones that know me very close, and that's family. Known them all my life, of course. And uh, so when they read it, they can identify with a lot of the stories, not mine in particular. But for example, I have uh, described, I wanted a scene in which Jonathan goes back and visits with his mother and has a very powerful conversation with her. And so I literally pictured the house I grew up in, the yard, everything. My mother's practices, her habits, and so on. So I describe it into the book, and, uh, you know, Jonathan goes there. And so what the result is that my siblings, when they read it, and even my older nephews and nieces who remember their grandmother and her house, they, they really start connecting. And even siblings, is like, oh, who am I in the story sort of thing. The close friends who know me very well will step back a little bit because they don't have that experience that my siblings do. But they know me very intimately and therefore can identify and understand, um, you know, considerably what I've gone through. Others take a more objective. It's a book. It's a story. It's in the third person. They don't know me personally. And so they're able to detach from it and actually read the story, I believe, in a more distant, objective way in which they can then start like, okay, how does this apply to me? What are the themes and so forth there? And so that becomes more me. So it depersonalizes it from the author. And so they're able to focus on the story itself. Okay. So a lot of people read literature and fiction for entertainment. I read somewhere that your audience is for more of a, a sophisticated reader who wants some more provocative literature rather than pure entertainment. What makes Sisyphus Wins provocative? Well, the um, I am a retired English teacher. I love literature. I've studied. So I draw heavily on uh, literary allusions. I include them, biblical allusions, uh, metaphors. And sometimes I think some of that gets lost in those, on some people. It doesn't matter. I mean, you get out what you get out of it there. But readers who are well-read and, you know, for example, one of my favorite stories, and I draw heavily on it, is Moby Dick and Ahab is like one of the greatest characters ever in the history of literature, from my point of view, of course. Why? But, Why? 
Oh, his struggle, titanic struggle with the universe, when he defies the universe itself, that, and how through this uh, very natural incident in which Moby Dick bites his leg and, you know, he, you know, from the knee down, it's gone. And so he has to walk, you know, on the peg leg from there on. And he swears to get revenge. And he will do everything in his power to get back at this beast that was simply, as Starbucks said, simply defending itself. I mean, you know, but Ahab sees this in cosmic proportions and so forth. And, uh, you know, there's that great line in there and how he heaped all his hatred and anger on the hump of the whale. And uh, it's just, again, a very cosmic story. So I think it's just powerful. I think it's very telling for us. And, uh, and so I include that in the story. Do you have any experiences from your life that made you relate to Ahab in the wanting to get revenge aspect? You know, that's a great question. I don't believe so. I, I remember when I was, I believe it was either 11th or 12th grade, I can't remember, and uh, Sister Leah was my English teacher, and we had the opportunity to uh, pick a book off the shelf, and I just grabbed Moby Dick, and I said, I want to read this. And it was, it was difficult. And one of my fun things, you know, if I wanted to really torture my juniors was to drag them kicking and screaming through it. But I learned also how to teach it. You don't expect people to read, you know, everything. It's there, all the detail that gets into the, like the size of the whale and how many bones it has and all that other stuff. But really the essence of the story itself. And it can really gravitate towards that, particularly at the end there when he's, the ship's going down, he's going down, and he's still cursing the universe, and I spit my last spit at thee, and I express my hate at you, and all this other stuff there. I spoiler mean, just, alert, spoiler <laughs> alert for those of you who haven't finished Moby Dick yet. <laughs> oh, no, you got to read it. You got to read it. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I, uh, like I say, when I was just a young guy, you know, older teenager, something just drew me to the story, and I loved it ever since. Well, that's a good enough reason to love a book. For those of you just joining us, we are talking with Jerry Fabianic, author, columnist, radio show host, retired teacher, denizen of Mother Earth, marathon runner, skier, climber of 14ers, 14er bagger. Jerry, why have you chosen to live such a mundane life? <laughs> oh, I just don't know when to stop. And I, <clears throat> I always say, uh, I'll stop when I drop. And uh, life is meant to be lived. You know, and I never was one to just to sit on a couch and, you know, watch life go by. I, I'm not just an observer. I want to be a participant. And that's just been in my nature from the beginning. I grew up. Uh, we didn't have much uh, when we were young. Uh, my father died tragically at a very early age. And so it was uh, difficult for the family at times there, you know, just meeting resources. But the, one of the beauties of it also First of all, we didn't realize we were poor. We just was. I mean, we just lived it. But our entertainment was out in the woods. My mother had this garden, and uh, which my father had even a greater garden, you know, when he was alive. But the backdrop of it was the woods. So we'd go out there and we'd play, you know, you know, my little young friends, and we'd be running around playing cowboy Indians, whatever it was. I always loved to be out in nature. And uh, that hasn't changed. It's still part of me now. Um, I think of those times and, you know, I could just breathe it and suck in the energies while I'm there. And so why sit around inside a house? I mean, it's great if you're there reading a book or doing something like that, but sit there to watch 
TV all the time, be entertained, be passive. Not my thing. Right. Where did you grow up? Yeah, uh, near Pittsburgh in okay. uh, Western Pennsylvania. Alrighty. And then what made you move to Colorado other than the incredible mountains? And right now I'm looking outside. We've got, well, I can't see Mount Massive. Mount Massive and Mount Albert, Mount Albert being the tallest 14er in Colorado, are right out my back window here. I can't see them right now because it's snowing quite a bit. <laughs> but what brought you to Colorado? Well, um, the prompt was that I had a brother who had moved here for a job. So I came to visit and took a drive up, and this was back in 1975, and I was in my mid-20s and took a drive up into the Rocky Mountain National Park, hiked out on the snow field, sat around or looked around there, and I said, holy shit, this is it. And I just wanted to move to Colorado. And uh, because something was drawing me, and the, the somethings were the mountains, and they still do. And then I looked back, and, you know, we can get in, perhaps, you know, discussion about Joseph Campbell and the hero's path and the journey and all that other. And I realized that that was all part of what was to be. And I needed to go on my journey. I didn't realize it at the time. It was a very personal journey and it still is. And hence the book is one of the results of it. And so for readers out there who have not yet read the book, and we haven't really discussed this yet, but Jerry this is a story, as you said, it's it's very personal, and it has to do with your coming out as a gay man. Would you yeah. be okay with telling our listeners about your experience of of coming out? Sure. When that happened and, and how? Well, you know, I realized um, when I was a little boy, I was not attracted to girls, to women and so forth. And I didn't know what to do with that. And I was raised in a Catholic family, went to a Catholic schools right up through 12th grade. And so what do you do? How do I do? I didn't have any mentors. So I reached out to, you know, a couple of teachers, male teachers. Uh, one was a, a, a secular or whatever, and the other was a priest. And uh, they were ver very kind, very supportive encouraging but you have to keep in mind this was like in the late 1960s it's not like today right and uh okay so i start getting a grasp on this here but you know it's still not something that was socially acceptable particularly in that environment and so you know there were some difficult times there and hence the journey so uh I make my way to Colorado, and um, what do I want to do with my life now professionally? And the only thing I ever truly wanted to be was a teacher. So I did, you know, two of my friends, I talked to them, and they said, then be a teacher. Okay, so what's all that entail? Now, again, I'm now in the 70s, 1970s and 80s, and uh, to be a very open, out gay man at that time, was just not doable and to be in a public school setting. And so it ended up, I had to keep it in the closet. My close friends knew uh, that sort of stuff there. That was okay, but it was an ordeal, uh, you know, to go through. But when I look back, no regrets, you know, that I mean, so much in my life now, the growth, the uh, strength that I have, the openness, the compassion I have for people who are just struggling in their own ways for their own reasons, whether it's sexuality or whatever it is, I think I just have a better feel for what they might be going through because of my own personal experiences. 
So you never had any negative repercussions while you were a teacher or you, you didn't come out during any of your teaching years? No, I never came out and the, uh, I never did. Uh, but what I got a feel for, I eventually had started teaching English at Summit High School in uh, Frisco, Colorado. And, um, you know, I taught ninth and 11th grade. Again, my close friends knew, but it wasn't something that obviously I wanted to be open, open about, but I was, you know, not hiding it in a sense that, you know, to try to avoid, because we would get into incredible discussions on the whole wide range of issues, particularly at the junior level. And I began to sense that, you know, 17, 16, 17 year olds are pretty sophisticated. They figure it out. Right. And, and I had to laugh because officially I didn't come out to my family until I was in my mid-50s. What? Your mid-50s? I was Wait in my mid Yeah, I know. And, uh, and I just and said, this is crazy. I just need to do this. So I wrote a letter and I have you know, a large family and I sent it to all my siblings. And some of them were surprised and most were very supportive. Yeah, but my older nephews and nieces in particular, they looked at it and they said, what's new? We knew that all along about Uncle Jerry, so it's no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> and I really looked back at my students, the older students that way too, and I said, it's no big deal. You know, I mean, we're here for a reason. That's good education. He's our teacher and he's challenging us. That's what's important. That's, that's wonderful. Hallelujah, right? Oh, my goodness. Scariest thing that's ever happened to you? Wow. Other, other than coming out to your family at 55. I mean, were, were you afraid? How did you feel when you wrote that? And do you still have that letter? Do you still have a copy of that letter? Oh, very much. Yeah. On that particular issue, no. It was just like, you're just going to do this. It's just done, you know, avoidance. It's time. It's time. And, uh, and I'm going to give a plug here before I get into the other question here. I just yesterday went to see Boy Erased. Okay. It's a powerful story about a boy. It's based on a true account, by the way, of a man who grew up in the South and was forced, like many others in the South in that area, to go through what is called conversion therapy. Oh, boy. And uh, it was an ordeal. So he wrote, the gentleman, uh, Gerard Conley, uh, wrote the book. And I just happened to pick it up uh, a couple of years ago when I was at the Boulder Bookstore. I was going through and I, ooh, and I read it and I was just like blown away. And, and in my next novel, by the way, I create a character who's already in that way. I do, so I already started getting my head around what is this like to go through conversion therapy? So it's now been made into a film. Russell Crowe plays the dad. I'll have a link to both the book and the film when I, when I do this. Okay, show notes. that'd be great. Boy yep. Erased. And, uh, Boy Erased. And, uh, but there's a scene, you know, which, because this young man is dealing with this. He's forced into this therapy and he's finally like, this is not working. And he's, you know, and he has this conversation, again, spoiler alert, with his dad at the end. And it comes about, you need to start understanding me. We're done playing the game here. That if you, we want to talk, we need to be talking straight at each other here. And we can't be stepping around it. And so there's this honesty that has to be there in front of people. You know, if we're going to be lying about ourselves and hiding stuff, 
We can never truly be authentic, especially with those you're connected with most, and that's your family. So back to your question about, was it scary when I wrote the letter? No, I was a little apprehensive when it went out, but it was like, it is where it is. It's A-L-A-V, and there you go. And uh, off that, the letters went, and the rest is history. Nice. Um, but the other the initial question you asked me, the scariest moment in my life, was based upon a real incident. And um, I was uh, beat up, and I, well, punched out, and um, I had a knife held to me. Um, and uh, that was not pleasant because I didn't know if I was going to survive that or not. How old, I did. How old were you when that happened, Jerry? Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm going to say in my 30s. Yeah. I, I would say in my 30s, yes. Okay. But, um, but these are part of the experiences and the ordeals that you have. And uh, there's a, I read this wonderful article, and I can't think of the name of it, but it talks about what we carry from our childhood. We know that psychologically. But for those of us that grew up in a culture in which you were considered less than human, perhaps, or, you know, the others shunned you or ridiculed you, you, you carry those with you into later life. And so, you know, for example, the shunning and that, oh, I didn't get invited to this or that. And you start to make a connection. You say, okay, the reason is because they don't want me there because I'm gay or whatever it is. And we can't say that. I'm just not invited. I'm not allowed to be there. And so uh, what ends up happening for gay men and women is that they'll carry that experience into their later life. And they really have to work on saying, maybe it's not that after all. But these psychological um, learning scars stay with you. A long time. And, and by the way, The Shunning would be a great book title. Thank you. Yeah, I because I wanted to, you know, have a couple in me I want to write. But thank you. I appreciate that. Yes. Along these same lines, do you have any fears for the LGBTQ community today? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, tell me. Tell me. You know, we somehow there's been a magical elixir in the last, uh, over the last decade. Uh, Ten years ago, we elected our first African-American president. That didn't end racism in America. If anything, it's even more pronounced and, you know, more out there. Uh, with the Supreme Court now ruling that laws against uh, same-sex marriage are inherently unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment, whatever, does not end bigotry. We see this happening right here in Colorado with the incident with the cake, you know, that the, the baker just refused to do it for whatever reason. And so even though he's a public business and there's this great big thing going on. And uh, the threats over the last couple of years to People on the margins, okay, uh, whether it's LGBTQ, other races, immigrants, etc., have greatly increased because it's like these people have been empowered to take it out. So, yes, I'm, I'm concerned. It's always going to be a struggle. And, um, but it, the answer is not putting your head in the sand. The answer is standing up there, speaking out, and being courageous about not denying who you are or anything like that. And um, just say, here I am, and this is who I am, and you know, I'm a good person, and I do good things, and I'm going to keep doing those there. And the vast majority of people 
get it. We see that here in Colorado 25 years ago when we passed uh, Amendment 2, which at that time legalized disc- discrimination against uh, LGBT folks by landlords. The Supreme Court ruled through that out, you know, within a year or two. But here we are, not only 25 years later, having the legal right to marry the man, woman of our lives, but our governor now is an openly gay man with a partner. They're not married yet, or I don't know if they ever will, but that's their business, you know. Mm -hmm. And he won by a big margin. So that shows us where society is going and how much we've opened up and accepted. I love it. Awesome. So to my listeners out there, get educated on the issues and vote for goodness sake, vote, right? Yes. Yeah. So let's end this on a happy note. I'm going to see you, is it next weekend for the Georgetown Christmas Fair at the Georgetown Heritage Center? Would you tell everyone about that, this event? Yeah, I'm excited about it. It's the second year. Uh, And what it is in Georgetown uh, we have an old schoolhouse built in 1874. It's been restored, and we use it as a, what we call our heritage center. So last year, uh, I had a prompting of a fellow author and just said, hey, I wonder if we can ever sell books in Georgetown. I'm, hmm, you know, I happen to know someone who lives there, me. And um, so one thing led to another, and within four weeks, I pulled it together. And each of the four days, it's always the first two weekends in December, so Saturday, Sunday, and uh, last year, I reserved the room at the Heritage Center, and I had each day nine to 12 authors. So it was very successful. We sold a lot of books. <clears throat> and uh, I thought, okay, let's, uh, you know, it seems to be a strong interest. Let's double this. And so I reserved two rooms, and I am now 100% booked on all four days, which means at least 24 authors will be there, 47 total different authors coming to share their works and the genres, the whole spread of them from children's and young adults, fantasy, adult fiction, science fiction, uh, historical, Colorado landscapes and stories on Colorado history and uh, what's else, self-help and spiritual. And I mean, we, we just got it all covered and they're excited about being here. So I just love, love if people come and uh, buy some books. So you will be there on the 1st and 2nd and the 8th and 9th of December. I will be there on the 1st and 2nd and the 9th of December, along with, as you mentioned, all, so many other award-winning authors. Yes. And uh, one thing I failed to mention earlier is that Jerry and I met at a CIPA meeting, C-I-P-A, Colorado Independent Publishers Association, which if if you are an author, a wannabe author, an already published author. This is an amazing organization to be a member of. They have monthly meetings where they bring in experts on all different topics in the publishing arena. And you have people there who can provide anything you might need for, for help. So it's a great organization. And uh, yeah, that's, that's where I met Jerry. And Jerry, there's a poster behind you. Tell me about the. Uh, tell me about that. I, I okay. see your, your book cover there, and and uh, if you have a copy of your book, show show the audience that as well. Oh, yeah. Yes, and um, I drew the the title of the book first of all is Sisyphus Wins, and I had made the fallacious assumption that when someone saw the name Sisyphus, they would immediately get it, okay, and understand what it's about. 
Rongo Bongo. <laughs> Here I get lost in my literary world. And, poor, uh, poor Sisyphus, because Sisyphus does not win in the original story, right? No, he doesn't. And it is the story of a man who pushes a rock, as you can see, up a hill. And for eternity. He's condemned by the gods to do that for disrespecting the gods and you know refusing to die and all this other stuff there. So it's a metaphor for life for us. Well, the original uh, back cover looked like this, somewhat plain. It was good. But what I discovered was that in, when I would go out and talk to people, they say, well, who's Sisyphus? What is it? Some people couldn't even say the name. And so I said, well, if I tell you the story, as soon as I would, you know, almost invariably people get it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I heard that. Well, then also, what's this about? Because if you look on the cover, as I said, this is, it takes place, it, it story itself, on Mount of the Holy Cross. And so you have the Christian motif of the cross there, but you also and have... And that's not Photoshop, by the way. That's not Photoshop. That's how it looks when there's snow in there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and Sisyphus, of course, is the Greek, and so the rational. And so I draw on both of those, you know, as powerful uh, elements in the story. So I recreated, as I said, the back cover and uh, recreated and so made that poster. So we go out and read, you know, like you're going to be at the uh, Heritage Center and displaying all your works. You're going to have posters and banners and so forth. And I was particularly excited because I have a young friend over in Europe I met some years ago when I was hiking, I went over a visit in the tour of Greece. He's Greek, of course. And he carried my book to the top of Mount Olympus. Oh, so, my goodness. There's my book sitting at the top of Mount Olympus. Thank you, Stephanos. And took a picture. So I had to blow that up and say, yeah, uh, it's there. It was there. And again, drawing on those uh, metaphors and so forth. So, yeah, it, it just it all came together, and there's so much in the story, and it's one that I've had people tell me, I need to reread it. You, once you read it through, you get the story life, reread it again, and start reading it deeper, and looking for those illusions and the settings and uh, so on, because, um, you know, there's just a lot in it. And tell me about Bighorn Book Nook. Oh, yes. What that is uh, a result of that I also do podcasting, as you do, and I do it through primarily the uh, radio station that I have been host on for the last 14 years or so, and that's KYGT Radio in Clear Creek County. So it's clearcreekradio.com. And uh, for many years, I was uh, doing interviews, mostly social, political and then after I produced a book, I came up with the idea, well, maybe I could start talking to authors and tell us about what you got it, just like you're doing with me. And it's taken off. Oh, my gosh. And uh, so what I do is I record them. And uh, at first, I was putting the audio files onto my website, jerryfabianic.com, but they were kind of getting lost in there and at the same time overwhelming the site. And so I created a whole new one. And I said, okay, I need a name. What's this look like? And so I called it the Big Horn book club. So the Bighorn book club is any author who's come on my radio show and we've talked and I've recorded interviews. So I put it onto that website. Yours are on there and uh, yay. And uh, you just go to bighornbookclub.com, click on Colorado authors, and you'll see a plethora of icons of books. And you click on that and behind every single one of them, is the author in his or her own voice talking about him herself, the book, et cetera. 
and it's just been wonderful. I'm getting great, you know, feedback from people who just want to know, just like we're doing here, who's the person behind the pen? And so that we can appreciate what she or he is uh, writing and producing. Well, I'm a big believer in authors helping other authors, especially indie authors. We're in a tough market, and uh, I don't believe we're competing with one another because we all have our own voice, and we're we're all creating so many different things. Jerry, how can people reach you? Well, uh, you can check out my website, Jerry Fabianic, and uh, that's spelled Jerry with a J and Fabianic, F as in Frank, A-B-Y-A-N-I-C, Dot com, and uh, you can email me jerry at jerryfabianic.com. I also do a couple blogs. Uh, one is uh, more spiritual, uplifting. I call it Higher Living Reflections. And sometimes they're just fun little things. Sometimes they're a little bit more serious. And you helped me a month or so ago when I read yours and you went like, okay, I'm so done with pumpkin. I'm not sure if those were your words. <laughs> I lost the love and feeling. For That's what it was. You lost the loving feeling for pumpkin. And I'm like, what? You know, so I had fun with that. And uh, because it still is in this day here, you know, with the big debate, is it pumpkin or pecan? You know, well, it's pumpkin pie. That's what it's about. And uh, so in the blog entry, I then think of Charlie Brown and the great pumpkin and Linus in the patch. And, you know, so I started talking about Linus and when he's out there and when Charlie Brown says, when are you going to quit believing in something like this? And Linus fires right back at him and says, when you quit believing in a big old guy with a red suit and a red beard and says, ho, ho, ho. You know? There, there you go. There you oh, go. Oh, it must goodness. be a difference in denominations. So, anyway, I write on stuff like that. Again, uplifting, some insightful things. Sometimes they're a little bit more serious. Like I wrote one a month or two ago called a, a good death. You know, so something again soulful to think. My other one is more social political. I also write for our local paper, the Clear Creek Current, and so I put all those articles up there. I call that Earthwise. And so there are two different blogs. You just click on them and you can read them or not, whichever. And then I communicate also. So when we have events like the uh, Bighorn Book Nook in Georgetown, then I send e-blast out about that too, just to give you a heads up, say, hey, Laurel McCard's going to be in town, you know, so, you know, get ready here, you know, because he's doing some great stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I will have links to everything that we talked about today with my show notes and a couple of photos that you sent me. Jerry, what kind of preserves do you spread on your toast? Ooh, uh, preserves. Oh, cherry. Definitely cherry, sometimes blueberry, but I eat a lot of blueberries in my uh, granola in the morning too. So, but I just, for some reason, I just love, yeah, so cherries. Nice. Well, stay warm. Um, I'm looking out the back window and I see back, you don't have any snow going on there in Georgetown, do you? Uh, We got a little bit. Uh, It's coming. We can get three to five, they say tomorrow, which means eight to 12, possibly. Nice. (laughs) Well, I expect that you're going to be out every day. Um, oh, yeah. skiing, you ski cross country? Uh, I do ski, but I'm going to take a year off from the Alpine downhill. And, uh, because one thing I've lost that love and feeling for speaking of like <laughs> you said about pumpkin is the Nordic, the back country. And I just love getting out there. And, uh, so I have my old cross country skis, which, you know, suffice, but they're not good enough. So I'm going to get, upgrade myself to my personal treat here to a good solid pair of backcountry skis and I got my snowshoes. So that's going to be my outdoor snow focus this winter as opposed to downhill. 
And right now, as you know, we are getting lots and lots of that good white stuff out there. So it's going to be yes. fun no matter what. And the sun is shining on your face right now, and it's still it coming is. down in buckets oh, right here. Jerry. That was my aura. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, of course, that's what it was. I'm yeah. looking forward to seeing you. Uh, people out there, go to Georgetown. Go to the Georgetown Heritage Center to meet me and Jerry and a whole bunch of other really awesome authors. And I believe they have crafters there, too, other than just authors. And uh, December yes. 1st and 2nd and December 8th and 9th between 10 and 4. I'll have links to the information for that too. And Jerry, absolute best of luck with your book and your future books. And we'll see you soon. Thank you, Laura. Just so enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, we'll talk more. All righty. Bye. Bye now. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com, where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com.